This is Africa Digest. It is 17 hours Central African time. A very good afternoon and welcome to it. It's Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We are also on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am your host, Ilwanda Maume. At least I'm a stand-in for this hour. With me on the show is Onel Nzinzi with Sani Matebula and Tambiso Ndima. Let's take a look at the top stories this hour. Somali President Son In Amnesty International releases its annual report on the state of the world's human rights. You know, Economic South Africa's finance minister tables his budget and suffers plans to replace Ephraim Sheikhs Mashaba as new head coach of the national team receive a boost. Details on these and other stories as we progress with the show right now. It's a minute after five. Let's get the news. Here's Onel Nzinzi. Thank you, Luanda. South Africa's Justice Minister Michael Masuta says government's decision to withdraw from the International Criminal Court still stands despite the High Court ruling that the notice of withdrawal without a parliamentary process was invalid and unconstitutional. He says government would decide how to proceed, including a possible appeal, after reading the full judgment. The opposition DA argued that the Masuta unlawfully bypassed parliament when he made the decision and therefore did not act in line with the constitution. Justice Ministry spokesperson Tunzimaka. Look, as government, we, we will uh, meticulously reflect on the reasons for the judgment um, because the matter has far-reaching implications and as such we will take a decision whether to appeal or not. Somalia's new president, Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, has been inaugurated. Mohamed was elected earlier this month in a step towards Somalia's first fully functioning central government in a quarter century. The new leader, who also holds U.S. citizenship, vows to make security a priority in a country where extremist groups Al-Shabaab still carry out deadly attacks in the capital Mogadishu. He is promising to tackle grafts in a country recently ranked by Transparency International as the most corrupt in the world. The People's United Democratic Movement, Podemo in Swaziland, has rejected media reports that the party intends to participate in the planned Ndinkunda 2018 national election to be held next year. The party, which has previously engaged in anti-election campaign, has issued a statement denouncing media reports suggesting it has changed its stance. The party is calling for a democratic alternative system, saying the current Ndinkunda system doesn't deserve the interest of the Swazi, doesn't serve the interest of the Swazi people, but the royal house. According to the party, it's planning to continue with campaigns to discourage Swazi people from participating in the election. Secretary General of the party, Mlungi Simakanya, says under the current system, power remains concentrated in the royal house. Kudemo has a long-standing relationship not to partake in these elections for a very simple reason. 
that these elections are meaningless, these elections are nothing but a royal sham, these elections do not empower in any way the citizens of Swaziland to be able to, through their elected representatives in the form of members of parliament, to have a meaningful control in the affairs of the state. The African Union Commission wants member states to deploy more female peacekeepers in missions. Currently, female peacekeepers constitute about only 3% of the deployments. The African Union Peace and Security Council has held a session on this issue. African Union Special Envoy on Women, Peace and Security, Benetta Diop. I think right now we are seeing in the world 3%. 3% is really, I think it's just a tokenism. Uh, we need to do more. Um, some troops, some countries, contributing troops like Ethiopia in the Amisom have really made, you know, some, some uh, efforts. But it's not enough. Uganda have done some efforts. So we have some countries, Rwanda, Burundi, but we need more. And lastly, the Gambian police have arrested Yankuba Baji, a former spy chief of ex-president Yajime, following allegations of torture and disappearances during his watch. Baji headed the National Intelligence Agency, which rights groups say carried out arbitrary detentions, forced disappearances and tortured during tortures during Jamais' 22-year rule. Promising to reform the National Intelligence Agency, criminal charges were brought against 25 supporters of Jamais' Alliance for Patriotic Reorientation and Construction Party over attacks on borough supporters earlier this month. Channel Africa News, Amoni Lenzinzi. Well, let's say thank you very much there to Onel and Zinzi with that news bulletin. It brings us to six minutes after five Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Luanda Maume. Remember, you can keep in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook on Channel Africa. Welcome once again. Somalia's newly elected president Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, popularly known as Farmajo, says he will focus on building the capacity of Somalia's security forces during his tenure as the Horn of Africa's new president. Farmajo was uh, officially sworn in today as Somalia's ninth president after he was elect- elected by lawmakers a few weeks ago. Channel Africa spoke to Abdenasir Ahmed, a journalist based in Somalia, to get an update on the proceedings of the inauguration ceremony. People were looking forward to the inauguration, and it is one of its kind in the recent history of Somalia, given the magnitude of the of the of the preparation and the, the, the and the and the protocol that were put in place. Uh, I think more than uh, 20 members of the preparation uh, committee were put in place. And uh, the things have started according to the plan today by 11 a.m. in the in the Eastern African time. And uh, for the first time in history, members of the public were given accreditation to the venue of the inauguration, and uh, that was a milestone. And uh, it installed the public confidence back into the presidency. This is a president whereby every every Somali has celebrated 
for his election and it started a new dawn for the Somalia, a new Somalia. The latest reports we have are suggesting that an attack by Al-Shabaab is highly likely. How tightened is security around the venue where the inauguration ceremony is taking place? Yes, uh, Al-Shabaab has spoken just the day before yesterday and they leveled the president for the first time that he's other state, he is an Islamic, he is not uh, someone who is different from the other previous uh, presidents who came into power and they showed their intention that they will do everything to harm him and uh, to destabilize his government. They will say that he will be finishing his term of four years uh, uh, fighting with them and uh, doing nothing else. Attacks is very much likely to happen. Al-Shabaab has shown their intention, but the security is very, very, very tight. It's very tight, and it is, uh, it's more likely that they will succeed even if they are something it cannot damage that much. Now, we understand that Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta is amongst the dignitaries who will be in attendance. Which other dignitaries are expected to attend the ceremony this afternoon, Abdi Nasir? I'm not sure about the Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta attending, but I am sure that uh, the, pre- the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Haile Mariam Bissalek, is in attendance. He arrived already. The president of Djibouti, Ismail Margele, has arrived. And there is other delegation from Kenya, but I cannot confirm the president of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta, arrived. Uh, there, is, uh, there is even a significant development in the, in the, in the integration because there were rebel groups who, who, who were opposing the previous president in the central regions who arrived in the inauguration showing that the president will be will be very much very much pleasing them very much uh, uh, coming to them they are moderate islamists uh, called Shuvists, and they, they already attended they are there they are here with a big delegation come to the uh, inauguration and that shows uh, a sign of unity that is Abdenasir Ahmed, a journalist based in Somalia, talking there to Channel Africa reporter Kumbelo Munjerere. The African Union Commission wants member states to deploy more female peacekeepers in missions. Currently, female peacekeepers constitute about only 3% of the deployments. The AU Peace and Security Council has held a session on this issue. Channel Africa spoke to the African Union Special Envoy on Women and Peace and Security, Pineta Diop, in this report filed by Coletta Banjoi. Africa has 10 peacekeeping missions in the continent. Those under the United Nations are in the Central African Republic, Cote d'Ivoire, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Liberia, Mali, South Sudan, Sudan and Western Sahara. In addition, the African Union leads the Amazon peacekeeping mission in Somalia. The African Union Commission says missions like AMISOM, which are contributed to by African member states, have very few women. The African Union Special Envoy on Women, Peace and Security, Bineta Diop, says this must change. I think right now we are seeing in the world 3%. 3% is really, I think it's just a tokenism. Uh, we need to do more. Um, some troops, some countries contributing troops like Ethiopia, in the Amisom have really made, you know, some, some uh, efforts, but it's not enough. 
Uganda have done some efforts. So we have some countries, Rwanda, Burundi, but we need more. In the African Union mission to Somalia, Amisom, out of 20,516 soldiers, only 693 are female. Bineta Diop adds that it is easier for female soldiers to reach out to female victims in conflict regions other than men. You know, when I visited some of those places and I asked, what is the contribution of the women? The, the women that have been victims of this war and conflict, the first thing they said, we prefer to talk to a female military, police military, rather than any other um, male, because we are traumatized. And uh, to share also our own issues as victims, we prefer to do it with the female. The African Union Peace and Security Council has received testimonies from representatives of the police and military working in Amisom. They say they not only need more female colleagues to join them, but also more support to get promotion in the field as well as better accommodation. They cite fears of the female soldiers contracting meningitis because of the poor accommodation facilities while in the field. African Union Special Envoy on Women, Peace and Security, Bineta Diop, supports them. Because we need to sensitize our member state to put more, but we need to create an environment, safe environment for women to engage. Because if they know that they will be having challenges like simple telephone to, to be in contact with their children, um, who will be left maybe behind them, um, going frequently to, to meet to, to at home, you know, and uh, talking to their husband, but also um, having these, the, 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 the tools uh, that are female tools, because we know that when uh, we are deploying them, we give them just the same tool, male or female. So we need to differentiate the tool. We need to make sure that also they... Um, they have a safe environment where they are in the camps. Uganda, Ethiopia, Burundi and Kenya have already put efforts in deploying women in peacekeeping missions, although the African Union says they, as well as other members in the continent, should deploy even more. Koleto Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Welcome back. It's 15 minutes after 5 Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Luanda Maume. Now, an increase of 45% for high earners and sugar tax is among the key highlights at this year's, at this year's budget speech delivered by South African Finance Minister Pravin Godan. Godan delivered his speech against the backdrop, backdrop of slow economic growth at ju- 
at just 1% a year and a high unemployment rate. The minister stressed the need to radically transform the economy so that there's, there's a more diversified economy with more jobs and inclusivity in ownership and participation. In South Africa, 95% of wealth is in the hands of 10% of the population. Godan explains. Madam Speaker, today's budget message is that we are once again at a crossroads. Tough choices have to be made to achieve the development outcomes that we seek. As I pointed out, our economic growth is slow, unemployment is far too high, and many businesses and families are under stress. We face an uncertain and complex environment. At the same time, we face immense transformational challenges. We must overcome the inequalities and divisions of our society, and all South Africans must share in a prosperous future. We have a plan for a more inclusive and shared economy. Its implementation requires greater urgency, however, and effective collaboration amongst all social partners. The key features of the framework for the 2017 budget include the following. Expenditure is within the envelope projected in last year's budget and at the MTBPS. An additional 28 billion rands will be raised in taxes, and you'll hear in a moment how it affects you. The budget deficit for 2017-18 will be 3.1% of GDP in line with our fiscal consolidation commitments. And government debt will stabilize at about 48 to 49% of GDP over the next three years. Redistribution in support of education services and municipal functions remain the central thrust of our spending programs. Government's wage bill has stabilized. Procurement reforms continue to improve the effectiveness of public spending and opening opportunities for small business participation. Our state-owned companies and financial institutions play a substantial role in infrastructure investing and financing development. Now that is uh, South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Godal delivering his budget speech there. Now to jo- joining us on the line is uh, co- uh, Head of Investment Consulting of Old Mushal Corporate Consultants, that is Andrew Davison, who joins us on the line to tell us more about this speech and make sense of some of the key points. Mr. Davison, good afternoon and welcome to Channel Africa. Uh, good afternoon and uh, thanks for having me. Now what's your overview of the, of the speech? Well, I think the the first thing to say is that uh, it was a difficult position that uh, the finance minister had to try and tread, and I think he managed to address the issue of a shortfall in revenue, and that's important, particularly from a ratings agency point of view, and obviously that has knock-on effects. If we were to be downgraded, you know, there would be severe impact on the economy. So hopefully he's done enough to avoid that. I think the one challenge is that the fiscal drag, which is implicit in not adjusting for the inflation effects that would apply to people's personal tax, as well as that increase in the marginal rate to 45%, I think that has the potential to put a lot of pressure on the consumer uh, in South Africa, and that could be uh, slightly negative for the economy overall. So I think there's a balance that was needed here, and maybe we've got that. But there are slight negatives on the economy, slight positives, hopefully, for the ratings agency. 
Now, what happens to people who've stashed away their eggs for their retirement planning? How, how does this affect them? Well, I think the important thing from a retirement point of view is that the main features of this particular budget is that, for example, the dividends withholding tax, which applies to the dividends that you get from shares, has increased from 15% to 20%. But if you're in a retirement fund, you don't pay any dividends withholding tax, so you escape that increase. So what that immediately says is that actually there is additional incentive to put money into your retirement fund, whether that's your employer's fund or your personal retirement annuity fund, you will avoid that increase in tax that will apply to dividends going forward. And then the other thing is that obviously what people should be doing and thinking about is how do I take full advantage of the tax breaks that I get by putting money into a retirement fund and uh, avoid some of these increases in taxes. So for example, if you're not already contributing at the 27.5% that you're allowed in terms of uh, your percentage of your salary, you should actually be increasing your contributions to a retirement fund. But if you're not saving in a fund, unfortunately, you're going to be hit by some of these additional taxes like the dividends withholding tax. Well, a bit of good news there, but thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Davison. Thank you. That is Head of Investment Consulting of Old Mutual Corporate Consultants, Andrew Davison, joining us there on the line. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now to speak more uh, further on this uh, budget speech of this afternoon by the finance minister, we are now joined by Chief Economics, uh, Economist at Econometrics, Dr. Azad Jamin. Dr. Jamin, good afternoon and welcome to Channel Africa. Good afternoon to you and good afternoon to your listeners. Thank you for joining us. Now why do you make of this budget speech, especially the need for equality, equality in the economy? Uh, the speech must be seen as a continuation of the kind of budgets that we've been having uh, twice a year over the past three years. You must remember that the budgetary process is a rolling process with a three-year time horizon all the time. Uh, So although the Minister of Finance went out of his way to emphasize radical economic transformation and uh, the need for greater equality, uh, one must realize that... uh, you know, his uh, ability to do anything dramatic from uh, between October and February was fairly limited. It's a gradual process. In the event, what has happened is he's uh, basically uh, lapped a um, super tax bracket of 45% on um, the uh, upper income groups. And uh, I suppose the impact on the real economy is unlikely to be huge because the uh, propensity of wealthy people to spend every cent that they earn is relatively low compared with poorer sections of society. Uh, So 
certainly the burden of tax will fall far more heavily on the upper income groups this time, which is in the direction of trying to redistribute the benefits of uh, the economy. Uh, you know, there's a limit to what one can call that a radical economic transformation, so to speak. Now, the minister has confirmed that sugar tax will definitely be implemented. Is this good for the economy, especially with the, with the industry, fighting very hard and claiming that this will cause uh, job losses? Uh, you know, this is a difficult one to assess because there are those who will say that uh, sugar tax is very because it will cause job losses. There are others who say uh, it's very because it will uh, prevent uh, a lot of people from dying who might otherwise have lived a lot longer and contributed to the economy. I don't think there's going to be an easy uh, solution to this. Uh, but besides which, I don't think it's a huge revenue winner. Now, the, gov- the minister has spoken about the need to reduce government spending and stabilizing in the next three years. Is this doable with the you know, Auditor General's reports coming back each and every year saying that there is fruitless and waste- uh, wasteful expenditure? I think the saving grace for us uh, in uh, recent years has been the fact that uh, um, the, the irregular and fruit- fruitless expenditure has been counterbalanced by an inability on the part of government departments often to spend their full quota of money. And so we, the government has ended up uh, being able to meet its uh, targets as far as expenditure go and not to overshoot them by too much. Dr. Chamin, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Th- Bye. That is Chief Economics at the Financial Consultancy firm Econometrics, Dr. Azza Jamin, joining us on the line to make sense of that budget speech by, by uh, Pravin Kodan. Amnesty International has released its annual report on the state of the world's human rights. The report contains a comprehensive analysis of the state of human rights around the world, covering 159 countries, including 10 in the Southern Africa. It warns that punishment of dissenting views and politically motivated attacks on peaceful protests and the right to freedom of expression are on the rise in countries such as South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe. More from Depros Mochena, Amnesty International Southern Africa Regional Director. This is uh, our flagship annual State of the World Human Rights Report, which covers uh, this time for 2016, 159 countries, and also covers 10 countries of Southern Africa, uh, but also covers most of the continent. Uh, We, this office, is responsible for the Southern Africa region, but pretty much the conversation that we put together in this report, our analysis, our assessment, is an Africa-wide and a global message that we're giving today. What does it primarily say about these countries um, in Southern Africa, dear pros? Uh, you, can you briefly highlight, you know, um, uh, particularly what it says about South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe? The backdrop of our coverage of this region is the fact that last year we saw a, a clear seismic political shift that uh, exposed hateful rhetoric coming out of world leaders, you know, politics of demonization, a growing trend of uh, scapegoating, labeling them versus us uh, as part of a national and international conversation taking place which really put a spotlight on minority groups, on vulnerable people on the move, uh, on human rights defenders 
and people who were protesting against malgovernance, uh, corruption, unemployment, poverty, and inequality, which have been on the rise uh, from Cape to Cairo, from Cairo to Chicago. So the context uh, we see, therefore, uh, for Southern Africa is that, like most of the world, Southern Africa was also a region afflicted by growing inequality, unemployment, and poverty. And many of the uh, people, ordinary people, citizens, students, youth, uh, rose up in different countries to protest. What they were experiencing was a continued exclusion and a governance model that was not providing for them the needs and the expectations they have from their governments. Specifically for Southern Africa, we saw, you know, from South Africa with streets must fall to Zimbabwe with this flag movement through Botswana with the unemployment movement protest and the Angola 17 in Angola, that a lot of young people and human rights defenders felt they had nothing more to lose uh, but to take up, uh, you know, to the streets and uh, talk to government that they needed their rights to be met, they needed their governments to listen, and they needed to be taken seriously as stakeholders in countries. Now, um, as part of the contents of the report, Amnesty International is also warning that um, 2017 is likely to see ongoing crises um, exacerbated by a debilitating absence of the uh, human rights leadership in the chaotic world stage. Tell us a little bit more about this view and why you think that we're likely to see more of these things happening this year. Thank you very much. Yeah, we really want that as we go into 2017, the organization is concerned, you know, that the human rights might be in a free fall because the world's most powerful states continue to turn away from their basic responsibility on the world stage. And in particular, if you look at the rise of President Donald Trump in the U.S. and the rhetoric uh, that uh, has characterized his divisive politics, uh, the threat to defund the United Nations, uh, will result in a collapse of the international system that has worked for this world to protect human rights since the World War II after those uh, catastrophic catastrophic events. If you look across Europe, you will see a post-Brexit UK, uh, which is not demonstrating that it will have the global leadership credentials uh, to address some of the more toxic and burning questions that the world stage is facing. And if you go to Europe, you are seeing a historic failure in providing leadership to deal with the refugee crisis uh, of many people who are fleeing from conflicts in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East and going to Europe and facing uh, rising xenophobic uh, tendencies and uh, and the government machinery, such as in Austria, that is more concerned with putting fences and walls rather than dealing with the structural and root causes of why people are on the move. Against that background, it is actually incumbent upon countries like South Africa Nigeria, Kenya, Brazil, India, and other middle powers and rising emerging powers from the global south to step up and Mm. provide global leadership for human rights, failing which ordinary people must stand up for themselves. That is Diplos Muchena, Amnesty International Southern Africa Regional Director, talking there to Zikona Miso. That brings us to 29 minutes before 6 Central African time. Let's get your latest news headlines. Here's Onelen Zinzi.
South Africa's Justice Minister Michael Masuta says government's decision to withdraw from the International Criminal Court still stands despite the High Court ruling that the notice of withdrawal that a parliamentary process was invalid and unconstitutional. Intra-party violence escalates in Zimbabwe against typhoid helpers and the African Union Commission calls for member states to deploy more female peacekeepers in missions. Channel Africa News, I am on Elinzinzi. Welcome back and I'll say thank you very much there to Onel and Zinze with that uh, news headlines. Remember still to come is your economics update as well as your sports update with uh, Tabiso and Tima. Right now, let's go to Somalia once more. The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says the humanitarian situation in Somalia will worsen even further if enough aid is not received within the next two months. Somalia is experiencing its worst drought since 1950, with parts of the Horn of Africa's country not having seen rain for two years. About three million Somalis, especially children, are in urgent need of food. Channel Africa spoke to Vincent Lelei, Deputy Head of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Somalia, about the extent of the crisis and the challenges that the agency is facing when assisting those who are mostly affected. In Tukarak village in Puntland in northeastern Somalia, the effects of the ongoing drought across much of the Horn of Africa region are clear. Kakases dot the village. Which there are more than 12.3 million Somalis, out of whom 6.2 million have been directly affected by the drought that started late 2015, continued through the whole of 2016 and on into the early part of 2017 up to now. The 6.2 million people that have been severely affected, half of them, 3 million require immediate, immediate uh, life-saving assistance. Uh, uh, We are worried that when this situation persists, it will lead to catastrophic situations because we see that already... Uh, 363,000 uh, children are acutely uh, malnourished and more than half of them are increasingly getting into a very, very bad state. This is the situation in Somalia. Are you getting the necessary support from donor countries in terms of funding and other forms of assistance? Yes. In fact, uh, donors... Uh, have been showing a strong commitment. Uh, we have received more than four, $400 million of pledges and uh, actual cash. However, this is a huge, huge crisis. We just appealed for $825 million for the next six months, and that amount that has been pledged or received is only about half of what we require. And given the security constraints, the access constraints, uh, the major logistical challenges that we face. Resources alone are not the only challenge, and in fact, even on resources, we have less than half of what we require. And so while we are saying thank you uh, to the donors that have significantly contributed, knowing the global context of similar situations in many countries, Uh, we think that uh, many lives will still very sadly 
If you don't get the necessary aid that we are talking about within the next two months, do you think we are likely to see a repeat of the 2011 famine, which saw about 250,000 people dead? Um, um, it's certain conditions uh, that are terrible uh, in terms of trends we are seeing come through, meaning the food prices uh, escalate and food availability reduces continuously. If the congested drain system does not come through because it is foreseen, it might be average. Um, if access and insecurity continues in some areas, then sadly it is very, very likely that we will witness in some pockets within the country the terrible and tragic situation we faced in 2011, uh, halfway around June, July, August. Now, just give us a sense of the humanitarian situation on the ground, because we understand that hundreds of thousands of Somalis have been displaced as a result of this drought problem in the country. What is the situation like in terms of those who have been displaced internally in Somalia? Uh, Somalia is definitely in this tragic situation with an already large number of people, more than 10% of the population, in displacement situations because of protracted violence and conflict. These uh, 1.1 million people are already in an extremely dire situation, depending on humanitarian assistance largely for their survival. This drought is adding on to this burden with newly displaced populations as a result of lack of water and food for themselves, and largely also because of the uh, deaths of their livestock, which means that their livelihoods have been decimated, they've uh, been wiped out. As a result, we have begun witnessing distress uh, displacements from among the nomadic population that always moves around in order to secure water and grass for their livestock, but as their livestock continue to die, uh, they now begin a different way of displacement uh, to areas where humanitarians uh, can provide assistance to them. We have not yet, however, uh, witnessed large-scale displacement yet. We are beginning to see trickles um, of people um, preemptively uh, uh, fleeing in the fear that maybe uh, the worst is yet to come so that it doesn't catch them where they are. That is Vincent Lelay, head of uh, the deputy head of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Somalia, talking there to Kumbelo Munjarede. The Human Science Research Council will launch its fifth South African National HIV Prevalence, Incidence and Behaviour Survey later this year. The survey of 22,000 randomly selected households in South Africa will include approximately 60,000 participants. The study will provide a comprehensive assessment of HIV behavioral status of the people in the country. More from the leader of the South African National HIV Prevalence Incidence and Behavior Survey, Geoffrey Sitzwe.
We have trained uh, almost 500 field workers. This is a national population-based survey in which we are doing door-to-door and we are asking people questions about their behaviors that are related to HIV AIDS and we ask them for drop of blood in which we are going to test in the lab to determine whether they have been infected with HIV AIDS and if so, if they are on antiretrovirals and uh, if so, uh, whether the antiretrovirals are working. So it is a national study going to around 22,000 households and uh, we are expecting to get around uh, 60,000 individuals in those households. After how many years do you do the survey? The survey is normally done between three to four years. The last study was conducted in 2012 and uh, now we are conducting the study this year in 2017. From the previous survey, has the number of daily infected people increased or decreased? This is what we want to determine with the survey. We want to know not only whether there has been an increase in the number of new cases, but we also want to see where the increase is. Is it young women? Is it young men? Is it among uh, gay men? Or is it among which other target group, migrants and so on, so that the interventions can be targeted appropriately to those groups. So when is the survey going to be released? The findings of the survey would probably be released towards the end of the year, most probably around the 1st of December, because it will take around seven months or so for the field work which has just started. When you check people, do you check South Africans or you check people who are legally here and illegally in South Africa? We are just checking everyone who is in a household in South Africa at a point in time. So if we get into a household, we are not going to ask you whether you are a South African or not. We simply are doing a survey of people who are in the country at that point in time and they are staying in household. From the previous survey, are you expecting a decrease on the HIV-infected people? The other studies have shown a decrease in HIV incidence among young people, and uh, but uh, an increase in incidence among young women aged between 15 and 24. So there has been an increase in interventions for this target group. So we're interested to see if our study is going to show a decline in this uh, target group, because these are new entrants into the epidemic, and uh, they're an important target group that uh, tells us whether we are becoming successful or not. From the previous survey, how do you determine from people who are using condoms and people who are not using condoms and people who are taking ARVs? Now, condoms, we depend on what we call self-report. We ask you a question from a tablet, whether you are using condoms, and uh, if so, how frequent you're using condoms and things like that. So it's a self-report. It is going to be validated by other studies. But with regard to antiretrovirals, we take a drop of blood, we take it to the lab. The lab can actually do more complicated tests that can determine whether a person is taking antiretrovirals and if those antiretrovirals are working or not. There's something called viral suppression can actually measure the viral load in the blood and can tell you whether you are virally suppressed or not. So previously, people had a challenge of using the female condom or not being familiar with the female condom. From the research that you have done or from the research that you're doing right now, how is the response on that subject? We are conducting research now. What we will do is when we publish the results, we will actually compare with the previous surveys to say in 2002, 2005, 2008 and 2012, when we did the study, what was the uptake of female condoms?
norms and uh, has it increased or not. But uh, overall, other studies are showing that uh, the increase in female condoms has been very minimal, uh, simply because the female condom is expensive, not easy to find and not easy to use. There are all sorts of negative comments. But uh, what I know is that uh, there is a new model of a female condom that is a lot thinner and more user-friendly that is being developed by uh, other researchers uh, elsewhere. This study is uh, a national study and the partners are the Department of Health, the South African National AIDS Council and the United Nations AIDS Program. So all of them are waiting for this results and uh, when we make recommendations, they act on them. Let me give you an example. In the last uh, survey uh, report, when we launched the report, we indicated that the uptake of condoms was decreasing. So the Minister of Health immediately implemented colored and flavored condoms among uh, university students and among young people. This was an immediate response to what we had found in the report that the take of male condoms was uh, becoming reduced among young people, particularly those that were at universities and uh, institutions of higher learning. All right, so do you think those new introduced condoms will actually help? Look, the HIV AIDS epidemic cannot be uh, killed by any magic bullet. Whether you call it a condom or a vaccine or a circumcision or what have you, it is a combination of interventions that will help us deal with the epidemic. We also are going to make recommendations according to different target groups. For example, there are things that work very well among young people, there are things that work very well among LGBTI people, and there are things that work well among uh, other target groups. So when we make recommendations, we make recommendations that are specific, that uh, relate to a particular group, and these are related to what our findings are showing us. Talking about vaccine, so there is this vaccine that is being tested in the country. Do you have any information about that? Yes, that vaccine is being tested among sample of people in this country and it is done by a consortium led by the president of the Medical Research Council, Professor Glenda Gray. And currently they are in the field and uh, we would know whether that vaccine works or not. Look, uh, another vaccine, candidate vaccine for HIV type 2 was tested in Thailand and that vaccine was only 31% effective. So it was not recommended for use because it was only 31% effective. It means it's something like 79% ineffective. And uh, so we are hoping that this vaccine trial works. But again, even if a vaccine were to work, we still have to use a combination of tools to deal with the HIV AIDS epidemic. Because that is Jeffrey Sitzwe, leader of the South African National HIV Prevalence Incidents and Behavior Survey, on the line talking there to Nosile Zuma. That brings us to 45 minutes after 5 Central African time. Let's get to latest economics update. Here's Wissani Matebula. In economics news this hour, Malawian President Peter Mutarika has dismissed Agriculture Minister George Chapandas following an investigation into maize procurement. Mutarika ordered an investigation last month into a 34.5 million US dollars government maize purchase from Zambia after allegations that the price has been inflated. He has been removed with immediate effect after he was found with millions of money at his residence on Tuesday. 
The fourth edition of the Cargo Africa Trade and Exhibition kicked off uh, this week in Johannesburg, South Africa. The four-day conference is expected to discuss challenges and find solutions facing the continent's air cargo industry. This is the first time since the inauguration of the conference that shippers and forwarders are participating in Africa's freight market is less than 3% of global market. The continent needs to catch up with the rest of the world as it faces a growing consumer market. Chief Operating Officer at Kenyan Airways, Jan Difach. But there's still a lot of things in Africa where, well, we should be concerned. I mean, take a simple thing as a runway. There are runways everywhere. But the amount of tires you wear out in Africa is about five times higher than anywhere else in the world just as an example. It's a simple thing, but still it's increasing our money. At the same time, overflight rights, lending rights are an easy way for governments to get money in in Africa. While on the other hand side, they should be thinking about their economic development, their economic base. If you don't invest in the airline business, you don't really get your economies connected to the rest of the world, especially with the large landlocked areas in Africa. U.S. energy company Chevron is in talks with Angolan government and state oil firm Solangol to revise tax returns. Uh, terms rather. Future investment will also hinge on uh, those talks. The oil firm says that it's been working b- both with uh, Solangol and various departments of the government of Angola to make it feasible for investment. Chevron says its investment will depend on the outcome of the negotiations. Zambia's economy is expected to grow by 3.9% this year and 4.6% next year. Foreign interest in long-term government securities showed increasing confidence by investors in the economy of Africa's second biggest copper producer. Government earlier forecasted that the the economy will grow 3.4% this year from around 3% last year. In Morocco, annual consumer price inflation has risen to 2.1% in January from 1.8% in December last year due to higher food and non-food prices. Annual food inflation rose 2.8% from 2.5% the previous month. Non-food price inflation rose to 2.6% in the year to January from 1.4% in December last year. Financial indicators now the dollar trading at 1309 South African rents 10.34%. Botswana Pula and 9.73 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.80 to the British pound and 0.94 against the euro. The commodities market uh, gold $1,236, platinum $999 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone up to $56.90 per barrel. And that's how it's looking right now. Well, let's say thank you very much there to Wisani Matebula with that economics. Now, here's your sports with Tabison Tema. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabison Tema with the latest sports update at this hour. We begin with the rugby news. 
Cecil Africa, the Springbok 7's all-time leading point scorer, is back in the 13-man squad that will travel to North America on Saturday, where they will contest the next two tournaments of the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series. The Las Vegas Sevens will be played at the Samboid Stadium from the 3rd to the 5th of March before the BC Play Stadium in Vancouver hosts the HSBC Canada Sevens from the 11th to the 12th of March. Africa, who has scored 1,167 career points, missed the Australian League of the World Series where the Big Box won back-to-back tournaments in Wellington and Sydney. He was struggling with a knee strain, but now he has fully recovered and is fit to go. The inclusion of Africa is one of the two changes to the South African squad that played in Australasia, with Steven Dipinar being the other. They replaced Siabelo Senata, who has moved to the Stormers, and Guaja Smith, who has joined the Lions for the 2017 Super Rugby season. Meanwhile, Loazim Volvo will end his 100th Super Rugby cap when the Sharks take on the Reds in their tournament opener on Friday. Volvo will join a select group of Super Rugby Centurions when he takes the field. The Sharks side will be skippered by Pat Lambie, while Teram Tembu has been named as the vice-captain. This side has a strong mix of experience and youth. FIFA President Gianni Infantino is in Santen, north of Johannesburg, for the second day of the FIFA Executive Summit. This is one of the key initiatives introduced by Infantino last year as part of FIFA reforms. The series of summits, which are 11, brings together member association presidents and general secretaries to discuss strategic matters and provide a platform for discussion, debate and exchange of know-how. The two-day event started on Tuesday and ends today. Speaking to the media, at Safa House Infantino elaborated on the summit. Well, no, let, me, let me just say that uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here in, in South Africa, to be here in Johannesburg for these uh, summits, uh, the football summits, which we organized for the first time in, in FIFA's history. We have representatives here from Europe, from Asia, and of course from uh, Africa, and the meeting starts very soon. On to cricket news. New Zealand struck back with a six-run victory over South Africa in the second one-day international in Christchurch on Wednesday to level the five-match series one-all. The visitors could not string together enough decent partnerships and with only two half-centuries of 57 from Quentin Ducock, 50 from Dwayne Pretorius, the odds were always stacked against the Proteus. Trent Bolt finished with three for 63 and Michel Sandner took two for 46 for the hosts. In the post-match interview, South Africa's captain A.B. de Villiers says they were a bit soft with the bat and have a few things to work on. Yes, I thought it was a great game of cricket. Um, credit to New Zealand, they, they posted a good score on there. Um, I thought we did fairly well in the, in the first half. Um, a little bit soft with the bat in hand today, unfortunately. Um, so we've got a few things to work on. De Villiers says he's not unhappy about bowling, but believes his side did not have good partnerships to win the match. I, I thought it wasn't too bad. Luke Ross was there and he was a set player. It's always difficult when there's a set player at the crease in the last 10. Um, difficult to find the right fields here with a big field um, at the AD Oval. But um, I wasn't too unhappy about the bowling performance. It's more about the bat. Um, I thought we, there were quite a few soft dismissals, um, not enough good partnerships. And the ones that we did actually get going, the good partnerships that started, we didn't extend. So um, it's crucial to do that if you want to win games of cricket. New Zealand captain Ken Williamson is happy with his size performance. He says wins against the best team in the world are not going to come easy. You know, wins against the, the best team in the world aren't going to come easy. And, you know, I thought today, 
um, particularly with the bat um, initially to assess the conditions, um, obviously off the back of Ross, Ross's brilliant 100 um, and to get to a very competitive total on that surface was, was a brilliant effort um, and from that point we were able to, to put them under pressure for a long period of time but saying that um, they did bat very deep, someone like A.B. de Villiers in the middle there, if you're, if you're not to dismiss him, um, he chases down most totals so um, we're fortunate just to dismiss him today um, and I think the death buying was just superb and um, the boys held their nerve at the end. Earlier, a record-breaking century from Ross Taylor set New Zealand to imposing 289 for four. Man of the match, Ross Taylor, says it was good to level the matter following Sunday's loss. Yeah, I mean, any time you score 100, um, if you don't win it, it doesn't really feel that great. But uh, it was a good good crowd, great occasion, and it was nice to, um, you know, obviously level the series as well. Yeah, coming in today in the conditions, it wasn't easy. How did you sum it up when you went out to bat? Yeah, I think we just wanted to take it deep. I think um, after Kane got out, we, we knew it was going to be tough. And, um, you know, they bowled very well, uh, Pretorius and, and Co. You know, put us, you know, bowled straight, and it was quite hard to hit on, on a slow deck. But, um, you know, a score of 280, 285 um, was always going to be challenging. And, you know, the bowler stepped up and, and bowled the ball in the right areas for long enough. That's a spot at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's close the show by taking a quick recap of your top stories. The ninth Somali president sworn in. Amnesty International releases its annual report on the state of the world's human rights. That brings us uh, to the end of Africa Digest for this hour from myself, your host, Leander Maume, technical producer, Catherine Malika, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email on info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us a text on plus 27-796-957-930. You can also find us on Twitter at Channel Africa, the numerical one, Channel Africa one. Taking us to the top of the hour is the music of Zonke Tigana. This one is called Feelings. Until next time, goodbye.